As we were worshiping last week, a drama was unfolding in our local mountains. As many of you followed throughout the week, as we each day followed if, if two hikers that were lost would be found. And it, a trail that some of you have probably hiked, if any of you hiked Holy Jim Trail, a few of you, uh, a, a trail not far away, um, pretty well marked, hard to get lost on. But somehow these two hikers were lost for, for multiple days. One was found, I believe, Wednesday night. One was found Thursday afternoon. And they were found at the bottom of, of steep ravines and crevices that, that one small step, one wrong step off the edge could lead them tumbling down. In fact, one of the deputies trying to rescue the, the girl on Thursday ended up falling 60, 75 feet knowing in broad daylight where he was going, but the, the footing was that treacherous. And as we watched that unfold, some of the questions that I heard come up were, okay, how could this happen? It's Holy Jim Trail. It's close. It's, it's, it's a, a well-known commodity. But the amazing thing about hiking is it just takes one step in the wrong direction that then now your paths diverge. So if I'm, if this is the path and I even take one step this direction and keep going, right here it's not a problem, but what's, what is it like at the back of the sanctuary? There's a significant distance. And for this couple, and we don't know what happened, whether, um, some have suggested maybe they were under the influence or maybe they just took a wrong turn. Who knows what the reason doesn't matter. They got off the trail and ended up going down into situations that they could not get out of. I think back two years ago, Yosemite hikers were at the top of Yosemite Falls and literally just took a couple steps in the wrong direction and ended up going over the falls and losing their life. And so just a step or two away from truth, just a step or two away from the path can lead to disastrous results. And, and the same is true of the church. The same is true of our Christian lives. As a church, just a step or two veering from the truth of God's Word, just a, a little bit going away from God, what, what God wants from His church, and the end result down the road is disaster and going over the falls. But personally, it's the same thing. If we begin to allow compromise into our life, if we begin to just open the door a little bit for worldliness, and just open the door a little bit to, to mix worldliness and our Christianity, the end result is disaster. And over the, the course of the next three churches, the middle portion of the seven churches, we see a sequence. And so some material is going to be repeated over the next three weeks. And that's okay because God repeats it in His Word. But we see a sequence of a church that begins to stray, a church that has embraced compromise, and then the results in two weeks, a dead church that is experiencing the end of that path. And so today we want to look at that first step. The first step off the path, the slipping of a church that was standing so strong. And we want to be challenged in our own lives to acknowledge truth and to hold to truth and to seek truth at all costs. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I want to begin by, by reading the letter to the church at Pergamum. Revelation 2.12. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under the seats. You're welcome to take one out and follow along. 
If you don't own a Bible, please just take that one home and, and use that to study God's Word and to learn about Christ our Savior. Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp edged, sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Dear Lord God, our Father, as we come to your word, as we come to your letter to the church at Pergamum, but really to the church as a whole, I pray that you would convict us, that you would reveal to us what you are seeking from your church, the holiness, the truth you are seeking, the stand you are asking us to take. Lord, I pray that you would convict us with that and, and burn that into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We start with the city of Pergamum. And if you look at verse 12, it's written to the angel of the church at Pergamum or the pastor at Pergamum. And if, we're, if you're following along, this is our third church. We, we've talked about Ephesus, who was encouraged to hold to their first love above all else, to love Christ deeply. And then we went to Smyrna, who was called to be fearlessly faithful, that, that nothing should keep them from being faithful. And if we go up a little bit north, so we started down here at Ephesus, and then when we, when we went up to Smyrna, and those were port cities on major trade routes. Now we continue up the road north about 75 miles, and, and the road followed the coast, and then went inland about 15 miles to Pergamum. So Pergamum does not have a major trade route. It's not a port city, but it was still a vitally important city. In fact, it was the capital of Asia Minor for Rome. And it was the seat of the emperor and the seat of the government at the time. If we considered Ephesus like L.A. or New York, Pergamum would like be like Washington, D.C. So it gives us sort of an idea of the status that it had. It was, a, it was a city full of beauty, full of wealth. And as you have in your notes, there's just a couple of things we want to mention. It was an important religious center. One of the reasons for that, if you look at the geography of the area, this is a, a view of what Pergamum was built around. And this Acropolis, or this hill, was about a thousand feet tall. On a picture, it looks like two feet, but it's really huge. It's about a thousand feet tall. And what they liked about this is it gave them an opportunity, a site to build temples. And so the site itself helped make Pergamum a great city because it was ideal for pagan worship. And so on that hill, the city was built down below it, the living spaces, and the hill was covered with temples. This is a view of that hill from the city, from um, some of the, the ruins in the city. And if you look up, you begin to see some of what was built on the hill. And go ahead and go to the next side. 
There we go. And so we, we get an idea of, now this is a picture of the top of the hill. We get an idea of some of the things that are built there. It was an important religious center. And if you notice that down in the bottom left, you have the temple of Dionysus. That was a pagan deity. You have the temple of Athena, a pagan deity. And you had others. You had a, um, the, the throne of Zeus was up here. And we have some more pictures of that. That has been recreated elsewhere. And you had a whole marketplace here. And you had a theater that was used in worship. This theater is not as large as Ephesus. Remember that one held about 24,000 people? This holds about 10,000 people. City about the same size, but different focus. And so you see a city that is committed to pagan worship. It's a religious city. Um, people came from all over to be here healed by the god Asclepius. And this god was, there's a whole story behind it in Greek mythology, but, but he was signified by the snake. Think about medical profession. Do you ever see a snake? It's part of their symbol, right? It comes from the worship of Asclepius. And one of the interesting things, and let me see if I can get to this slide. Go to the next slide, Don. This is what would be the altar to Zeus. And so this was recreated um, outside in a building in Berlin. And that's a little bit of a picture of what they would have been doing. Go ahead and go to the next slide. It's a little bit of the, the area. They had built aqueducts. It was very well built up, a highly educated area. Next slide. Um, this is a little bit of a marketplace, just to try to give you a feel of the city. Next slide. As they worshipped Asclepius, they, they, they sought him for healing, and people would come all over for healing. And this was the tunnel of healing. Okay, so the, we need one of these today. And um, what they would do, and this is near the temple to that god, and people that needed healing would go down into this tunnel, and they would walk the tunnel to be healed. See, who knew medicine could be so easy? And if you see these holes right here, those are vents that let light down. And the, the, the so-called doctors would stand above those and yell down words that would heal the people walking underneath. And then we have a picture on the next slide of what the tunnel looks like. And so you can see that you can see the holes at the top and people would walk through there. And so that's a little bit of what was going on with the, the pagan worship. It was a religious center of the area. There were um, temples to Asclepius, to Zeus, Dionysus, we saw that, Athena. Um, there was all kinds of other temples to these gods. But more importantly than that, Pergamum was the center of emperor worship. You know, we've talked about emperor worship in several of the cities. Pergamum was the place. It wasn't the greatest temple to these other gods, but it was the place for emperor worship. In fact, 29 BC, they built their first temple to the emperor. And then from there on, they built several more temples to several more emperors. And if you're going to get in good with one, why not get in good with all of them? And so over this hillside in their city, they had a whole number of temples to various emperors. Pergamum was also one of the first places where Christians were persecuted by the imperial government as traitors. This is Washington, D.C. It's the center of government. And so it's the, the seat of an area where if, if a Christian would say, I believe in God and not the emperor, they would be, be persecuted. So it's an important religious center. It's the center of emperor worship. It's also a city of great learning and beauty. They had a great library in Pergamum, and that gives you a taste of the culture. Learning was important. Intellectualism was important. Their library had over 200,000 parchments in it. 
In fact, the name parchment comes from the name Pergamum. The, the, the two names are derived together. And the story goes that, that back a couple hundred years earlier than this, the king of, of Pergamum was trying to build the largest library. And he had the second largest library. The largest one was in Alexandria in Egypt. So you can imagine a little bit of rivalry. So he had this plan that he was going to add more documents and he had talked to the, the librarian from Alexandria that was in charge of all these and he was going to come over to Pergamum and Pergamum was going to become the center of learning. And so the king or the, the, the pharaoh of Egypt decided this isn't going to happen. And so he cut off papyrus exports because if you don't have any way anything to write on, you can't build your library. So there was this whole embargo against them. Out of that, in Pergamum, they, they learned how to create parchment, which is using animal skin to create um, paper or something to write on. And so that's just a little bit of a, a fun fact that lets you know a little bit of where Pergamum was, um, what, what it was about. It was a um, city of learning, a city devoted to Rome, a city that worshipped the emperors. When Julius Caesar was in power in Rome, Pergamum was enjoying another golden age. Upon his death, Mark Antony, these names sound familiar from school, um, decided to give all 200,000 um, 200, books or documents from the library to Cleopatra as a gift. So this, this has to do with all that history and, um, and just a, a rich history at this city. A um, couple of other, um, Don, if you want to go to the next slide. This is one of the temples to one of the emperors. It looked much nicer back then. But it gives you a flavor of the ornateness and the value they put on, on emperors. So that's our brief sketch of Pergamum. So we get into the text and we want to say, okay, what did Christ say to the church that was living in the seat of government, the area where emperor worship was the strongest, where you were expected to go by the altar to the emperor, put a little pinch of incense in, and, and give praise and worship Caesar? How is this church doing? So we come and we go through the different characteristics, the different parts of the text. The first is he always starts with a characteristic of Christ in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And when you heard that, what was your first thought? Fluffy? Warm? Discipline, okay? If... If dad came into the house and he says, I'm coming home and I'm coming with a paddle, that usually didn't mean hugs and kisses. That usually meant I did something that needed to be corrected. If I ever did anything that needed to be corrected. <laughs> so, so Christ comes and he says, I'm coming, but I'm coming with a sharp two-edged sword. And, and right from the start, he is setting up the, the dilemma that they will face between the words of Christ, the truth of Christ, and the emperor worship the culture of the city. Now we know that, that the words, the, the sharp two-edged sword represented the words of Christ. In Ephesians 6.17, in the, the, um, the armor of God, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In Hebrews 4.12, a passage we've gone to often, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so this was a symbol that represented God's Word, the power of God's Word, the conviction of God's Word, that it could cut through anything and get to the heart of the matter. 
But it's so pertinent that Christ uses this for Pergamum. Because in Pergamum, it was one of the rare cities that had the Roman right of the sword. And not every city got this, only a couple of key cities. We see this with Pilate a little bit later when Pilate, or a little bit earlier when Pilate's talking to Jesus in John 19. Um, he says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And we, we see Pilate there has the right of the sword, which represented the ability to, to perform capital punishment, the ability to execute. And so Pergamum was one of the other cities that had this right. And so the Christian church is living under this dilemma of they have the sword, and, and it was represented by the symbol of a sword that we can kill you at any time. Get out of line, lose your head. And it's very important that Christ says, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Because he's setting up the, the decision the church has to make. Do I follow the power of God or do I follow the power of Caesar? Which one's more important? The words of God, his ability to correct, or Caesar's ability to crucify? And so this is the dilemma that we come to this church. Will they give validity to God's Word? It's powerful and true. And that sword idea, that the image of the sword, the image of the truth of God's Word, sets the stage for this entire passage. So that's the characteristic of Christ that is given as, as He writes to the church at Pergamum. Then in verse 13, we get to the commendation. What are they doing well? And, and it's an incredible statement in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. Now, now let, let's, let's stop there for a minute before we go on. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And there's been all kinds of talk about throne. Some, says, may, some say maybe this was the, the altar to Zeus that was up near the top. Some say that it was all of these pagan deities. But the, the problem with that is this wasn't the seat for all the pagan deities. There were other cities that, that had greater pagan worship for each of these gods. If you looked at what Pergamum was known for, it was known for emperor worship. That was what it was all about. It was the capital of temples to the emperor and commitment to Rome. And so most likely, and we can't be sure, but most likely when he says where Satan's throne is, he's referring to the Roman occupation, to the heavy hand of Rome, and to the worship that's happening to the emperors. Not that it matters, because all of those things are the work of Satan. But Rome was considered the center of Satan's activity. At the top of the rock citadel, at the, at the top of the Acropolis, was a temple to Augustus, one of the emperors. And so we start, Jesus is saying, I know where you live, I know where you dwell, and the idea of dwelling there is, you're there for the long haul. He says, I know it's bad, it's the throne of Satan, you are being attacked, it's the center of Satan's authority in the area, but you're dwelling there, you're choosing to continue. Sort of like a family that chooses to say, stay in an inner city where gangs are taking over and all kinds of corruption is happening 
and chooses to stay there instead of fleeing and living somewhere else. That's what this church was doing. And so I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. Remember what name stands for as we looked through the attributes of God? Name stands for the reputation of God, the character of God. It's an identification with God. To hold fast to someone's name is like wearing a sign that says, I am a Christian. Nothing's going to change that. And in the midst of this town where people were being persecuted for not worshiping the emperor, they held fast to the name of God. They represented him well. It's, it's like my, my kids when they get a piece of candy and they're holding it like this and, and their brother or sister is trying to take it from them. Yeah, just think how that goes. You, know, there's, you can't pry it out of their hands because it's dear to them. It's precious to them. That's the imagery of holding fast to his name. You can't pry Christ's name off my forehead. I will not deny him. Incredible words from God. In fact, the verse goes on, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And he repeats that this is the stronghold of Satan. And the picture here is of a church where one of their own, a lot of people feel probably one of the pastors of of Pergamum, was brought before the, the government, brought before the authorities, and was given an option to deny Christ. Just say you're not a Christian. Just say Christ didn't die for your sins and rise from the dead. Just say it and you'll live. And we see that in movies, but, but this was real to them. And, and in church tradition, a little bit later, they write what, what possibly happened to Antipas. And again, we don't know that for sure, but it's church history in their books. They put him in a brazen bowl. So a, a metal bowl that's hollowed out. They put him inside and roasted him until he died. And not to get gross, but that is the level of commitment that this church had to saying, I am a Christian. I follow Christ. Nothing will change that. Does that get your heart going a little bit? It's like, let's go do this. We don't have to face brazen bulls. But we have options of how we openly share our faith. Do we openly wear the name of Christ? Or do we put a jacket over it and a sweatshirt over it and hope nobody notices? This church didn't hide it. And they were willing to die for it. I can remember at Wildwood a number of years back, some of you might have been there. We had a night of persecution and, and they, um, I was with our group and, and they pulled me off to the side and it was all play acting, so don't get too upset. Um, they pulled me off to the side and told the group, if any of you will deny Christ, you'll save his life. If you, if you won't deny Christ, he dies. And they, they pulled me off to the side and no one denied Christ and they had a shotgun with blanks and, and, pretended to to execute me. And it brought into reality what so many in the world, in the church in the world, face today, this morning, as we sit here able to worship. There are brothers and sisters in Christ fearing for their lives because at any moment the soldiers could come in or the government could come in and say, deny that you are a follower of Christ or you die. 
And don't let the fact that it's happening elsewhere in the world and not here keep us from learning the lesson of being bold for Christ. Of standing up for Christ. Because the question that that haunts me is why is it easier for them to stand up for Christ and wear His name on their foreheads than it is for us where it's safe to do so? And that's convicting. That's challenging. And so the commendation to Pergamum was you did not deny Christ or your faith even in the face of death. They did not deny Christ or their faith even in the face of death. How do we apply this? By being uncompromisingly open, visible, and faithful in our belief in Christ, no matter the consequences. Did you catch that? Be uncompromisingly open, visible, and faithful in your belief in Christ, no matter the consequences. That's the path. The moment that we start to hide that we're a believer, that we start to hide that we're a Christian, we have taken a step toward the precipice. We have opened the door for Satan to come in and cause us to doubt and eventually renounce our faith. Maybe not directly, maybe not with our words, but definitely with our actions. Are we ever afraid for people to know we're Christians? Pergamum wasn't. Hold fast. Don't, comp- go, don't compromise your faith. You know, what does it say if we don't want to be called by His name? What if you were walking through and, and your, your kids are playing with their friends and you're walking through and you overhear a conversation and you overhear your kids say, and Joe, I'm going to pick on you. You're right here. Uh, so you overhear one of your, your kids say, sorry, not you. <laughs> I don't want to be called a Diaz. Don't call me a Diaz. I don't like that name. How are you feeling at that point? You're going to deal with that. But how does God feel when we hide the fact that we're believers? His children that He died for in our place, taking our sin upon Himself so we can be adopted into His family... If we don't want to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Christ, a follower in Christ, that's akin to denying. So we can learn from Pergamum. Be uncompromisingly open, visible, and faithful in our belief to Christ, no matter the consequences. And I encourage you to just write down on your notes somewhere, try to think of a practical way you can do that this week. This is easy to talk about, well, yeah, preach it, Pastor Ron, go for it. But how are we going to be open and visible with our faith this week? Write down an idea. In fact, give me some ideas right now. How, how would you do this? How could you be open with your faith? Carry your Bible around. Facebook. So many of you posted after the service last week, proclaiming that He is risen. What a blessing. Facebook. Tell other people what you've discovered in your Bible and you read it during the week. Absolutely. Did you guys hear that? Tell people what you learned that week as you read it that week. Not worry about your grade when you're in class at school. Not worry about your grade. I, I don't know. Oh, there you are back there. Not worry about your grade in school. 
Maybe because you're standing for truth and they don't believe truth? Absolutely. Answer honestly when someone tomorrow morning at work says, what did you do this weekend? Let's be open and visible with our faith and see what God does with that. He saved us. He adopted us. He gave us eternal life. The least we could do is wear His name boldly. Verse 14 and 15 goes into criticism of the church at Pergamum, though. So we know God wants His church to be bold, to open, be open about holding to His name. But in verse 14 and 15, we see what's happening in the criticism of the church. But I have a few things against you. Again, I would shudder if I was hearing this. I'm like, oh no, please, nothing against us. nothing. I have a few things against you. And remember, this is Jesus who out of His mouth has the double-edged sword. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we see the criticism here is that some have rationalized compromise and hold false doctrine in the church. Some have rationalized compromise, have made it okay... And they're holding and teaching false doctrine in the church. Let's unpack this a little bit. You see in verse 14 the the reference to Balaam and Balak. And that's an Old Testament reference to Numbers. Numbers 25. And and actually 23 through 25. And just to summarize the story, the children of Israel are coming through Moab. Which is across the Jordan from Israel. And they number, you know, one or two million people at this point, and this massive amount of people. The king of Moab is scared to death that he's going to get destroyed. And so he has this plan, because he's seen other, other nations try to go up against Israel face to face. And Israel always wins. The other nation always gets destroyed. And so he says, let's try this another way. And he goes to a prophet of God, Balaam, and says, I'd like you to come and curse Israel which basically is saying, take God's favor off of them so that way we can destroy them. And Balaam at first is like, no, no, I can't do that. And then he's offered money and he says, okay. And, and, and he goes out and he's on his way and I'm condensing the story a little bit. And if you remember, the angel of the Lord stands in front of them and who sees him? The donkey. It's great. I love this story. And the donkey, so Balaam's hitting the donkey. The donkey finally talks to Balaam, which is just a little freaky. And, and God uses a donkey and an angel to stop Balaam from cursing Israel. And in fact, they get to the overlook and Balak, the king of, of Moab, says, okay, do your stuff. Do you remember what Balaam did? He blesses Israel. And the king's like, no, 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 you did it wrong. You want your money? You got it. You got to do it right. And so, so Balaam tries again and he blesses Israel again. And this happens three times. And, and Balak, the king says, no, no, no more. I, this isn't working. And that's where that story ends. And we think, oh, you know, Balaam wasn't that bad. He started out wrong, but he ended up doing the right thing. But that's not the end of the story. See, what Balaam went on to do, Probably, I think, to get his money still. Because he pulls Balak off to the side and says, you know what, I can't do this. But there's another way. There's another way you could take out Israel. Here's what you do. 
you get some of your prettiest women and you bring them into the land. So you do this peacefully. Don't go on a direct, a direct frontal assault. Bring the prettiest women in amongst the Israelites. And he says, you know what's going to happen? Is those guys are going to fall for them. And they're, they're going to want them and they're going to fall into sexual immorality. And that's the first step. And then the next step is they're going to start joining them in their religious celebrations to Baal. And they're going to be part of that. And then if you do that, the next step is now they're going to be participating in those and worshiping a false god. And then God's favor will not be on them and you can destroy them. Insidious. And some will say, well, we don't read that in the passage, but we read that later in an explanation in Numbers 31. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. And so all of this is on Balaam's advice. In fact, Numbers 25 describes what happens. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked itself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And we know that God intervened before Israel was destroyed and He sent a plague and 24,000 were killed by the plague before His nation turned back to Him. And, and this story was top of mind for the Jews. They knew what was referenced when someone said, oh, you're like Balaam. Like, oh no. He's a traitor. 24,000 of us died because of him. Don't call me Balaam. And Jesus says, you're following Balaam. And what he's saying here is you're following a path of compromise. See, Satan tried the direct frontal assault with persecution. And Antipas and the church stood strong and held to Christ's name. And so Satan says, you know what? Let's do, let's try a different approach. That didn't work. He's smart. Let's try a different approach. Let's try compromise. Let's start to teach that accommodation in this city is okay. In fact, you know what? The emperor isn't really God, so so why not give a little bit of worship to him? You're not really worshiping God. You can do that, and that way you can still be part of the trade guilds, which we'll talk more about next week. You can still be part of society. You won't be persecuted. And in your heart, you're not really worshiping him. Do you see how this teaching was starting to infiltrate, could start to infiltrate the church? If this is the center of government worship, of emperor worship, if your life depended on it. And so just like Balaam, people in the church were starting to say, food sacrifice to idols is okay. And, and this probably isn't the food that's in the marketplace that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. What he's probably referring here with both the food sacrificed to idols and with the sexual immorality are acts that were part of worship of these pagan deities and of the emperor. 
And in fact, we know that there were so many deities there and each deity had at least one day, sometimes two or three days together, where it was a celebration of that deity. And if you were a citizen of the land, you were expected to go celebrate. And celebration meant drunkenness. It meant orgies. It meant worship. It meant feasting. As this meat is, is given to idols, feasting on it, it was an act of worship. And some were saying, well, you know, that's probably okay. We live another day. We can fight another day if we just give in a little bit. What's the harm in it? Everyone else is doing it. I have my kids to think about. And it's the first steps of compromise. They weren't necessarily participating in all this yet, but their thought life, their belief system was beginning to say that this was okay. You have some among you who believe this. And that's an important idea is that Satan is attempting to change their belief structure to get them to those first steps of compromise. The passage goes on in verse 15, so also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There's all kinds of debate. Is this a separate group or is this a a group that, that Jesus is referring to that he was using Balaam as an example of? I tend to think it's the same group and, and he's, he's doing a comparison between the two to show how evil the Nicolaitans are, but goodness, it could be separate things too and it doesn't matter because it's about compromise. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so the teaching is that just a little drop of poison won't hurt you. I mean, imagine if I gave you a Dr. Pepper and I said, you know what, it'll be fine. I only put a couple drops of poison in there. I'm sure your body will be able to handle that. You'd think I was nuts. You'd probably take me to the police station. And I would be nuts. But that's what the church is doing here. Because they're allowing it in their midst. They're allowing it to go unchecked. And so they rationalize that a certain amount of compromise is essential to live in the city. And again, we can rationalize so much right along with them. We can live a different life Monday through Saturday than we do on Sunday and say, at least I give God one day. We can go home and be completely different with our family, be horrible with our family, and be so kind to everyone out and around. And we say, well, I need a place where I can just be myself. Well, ourselves are sinners. I don't think we want to be ourselves. We can rationalize entertainment choices by things like, oh, it's not affecting me. No, it's affecting our thought process. It's affecting our values. We can justify a lack of priority of the kingdom and a lack of involvement in the church with, oh, I'm busy doing other important things. We can justify not being open with our faith by saying, I just don't want to offend. 
And these are all, the rationalization is all part of the thought process, a belief system that takes a first step toward compromise. Because if we can believe it's not as bad as it is, the next step is we're willing to do it. And we're going to see that in the next church next week. The application. We need to know truth and do not compromise it to accommodate the world or our own desires. Know truth and do not compromise it to accommodate the world or our own desires. This is so important today. This is why we at Village teach truth and try to teach from God's Word. If you've been here any length of time, you know that most of our series are a book of the Bible. And that's vital to knowing truth. Occasionally we do a series on theology, which is vital to knowing truth. Our teaching is firmly rooted in the Word of God. That is essential to a healthy church. It's essential to keeping from compromise. It's honoring the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. And churches today are struggling with doctrinal drift, not knowing where they're headed. They're struggling with, with trying to keep things so, so surfacey that people aren't going deep and people are dying in their faith and people are compromising because we're not willing to do the work of knowing truth. And yeah, sometimes it is like eating broccoli. My kids still eat broccoli because I want them to grow strong. I don't want them to get sick. But you know what? God's Word, as you dig into it and study it, isn't just vegetables. It is a joy and a delight and a source of encouragement if we give it the time it needs. We're struggling today, last the week before last, with issues like gay marriage. And we're seeing churches across the nation shift their views on gay marriage. And that is disturbing because we are shifting truth to accommodate culture. To keep from being laughed at. To try to stay relevant. Well, truth is truth. I was listening to a pastor a couple weeks ago that that was on a, a talk show and the pastor was arguing for gay marriage. And one of the other, actually the non-believer was arguing against gay marriage and said, well, don't you even believe the words of Christ? The definition that Christ gave when he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife? And the pastor, the pastor said, well, if Jesus was alive today, he would admit he was wrong. Because he didn't know then what he would know now. All kinds of theological problems with that. All kinds of problems. And it makes me angry. It's why we went through the series on the attributes of God. Because that is everything. That is a foundation. Are we as a church willing to stand up and say Christ's definition of marriage is truth? Absolutely. And I know that's hard. I know you college students are getting hammered on your college campuses about this issue. But when pastors are compromising truth, we have a problem. No truth. And that takes work. 
and do not compromise it to accommodate the world or our own desires. Last point as we wrap up, or last couple sections. Verse 16, we get to the command. We get to the warning. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's talking to the church here. He's not talking directly to the people that are teaching falsehood. He is talking to the leadership of the church and say, repent. Now, they're not repenting for the compromise of a false belief. They're repenting for the compromise of allowing it to persist in the church. Because one step takes us in a direction toward failure. And so Christ is saying, let's stop it right here. If someone's teaching these things, confront it and deal with it. And that's his message. Deal with it or I will. Deal with it or I will. You know, and we, and we see a, a comparison to Ephesus here. And, and Ephesus and Pergamum are on two sides of the coin. And the middle is the truth. Ephesus was dealing with false teaching. They were hammering people with it, but they had forgot love. They had forgot that side of things. Pergamum is all about accommodation and love, and they forgot to be strong with the truth. I don't want to confront them. That's uncomfortable. And, and no, he's not just talking about every disagreement. Some of you and I disagree on finer points of theology. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about sin issues. Salvation issues. And the challenge to the church is, do not allow influences of false teaching, sin, and compromise to continue. That's our application. Do not allow influence of false teaching, sin, and compromise to continue. Teach truth. Teach God's Word. Teach doctrine. And confront any variances of that. But think about our lives again. Do we allow influence in our lives that are subtly taking us away from truth? Think about who you spend your time with. Are any of the the deep friendships you have actually pulling you away from truth? Think about choices we make. How we spend our time. Are we allowing voices of compromise into our lives that are going unchecked? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have non-Christian friends. We should, but their voice of compromise, the voice of untruth, should not go unchecked. We should respond on issues like gay marriage. Because it's truth. We should know the Gospel, and as convicting as the Gospel is, we should be willing to share it. That's the purpose of relationships with unbelievers. To share Christ with them, the greatest news ever. But do I allow influences in my life that are subtly changing how I think? Historians are marveling at the incredible speed at which the shift of American thought is happening right now. I would say it's because there's no foundation. Satan eroded the foundation, and so when you're on sand, it's easy to move. But are we going to prevent those kinds of influences in our lives? 
How many TV shows are subtly bringing in sin and deviant behavior as normal? That means something. Don't think that doesn't. It means something because the next generation is who is leading the shift because they have been watching and and soaking in those kind of values. What in your life needs to go? What is a voice of compromise? Next week we'll talk a lot more about compromise and we'll talk about how compromise happens and some aspects of compromise. But I'd like to end. We need to close. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And he ends with the conqueror's promise. This is the promise of what God will do for you. And in this case, there are so many things written about what the manna represents. There's at least 12 things I read that argued for different meanings of the white stone. But here in a nutshell, God is promising to take care of the needs of those who believe in Him. The manna represents spiritual food. I will feed you, I will sustain you with my truth. You don't need to accommodate. The white stone, I I think out of all the options, represents a, a ticket of admission. And it represents admission into the kingdom of God. And again, because that's where most of these rewards, promises come, is to the eternal kingdom. And so I will sustain you, I'll provide you food, and you have a future with me. And not with the world you're trying to accommodate to. You don't have to try to be accepted in these feasts. You don't have to try to be accepted in your neighbors. Stand for me because you are already accepted in the kingdom of God. And you are already family. Pergamum. Church that reminds us that God wants His church to guard against false teaching as we boldly stand for Him without compromise. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we come to You in a world that at times feels like it's failing and falling into sin so fast. Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray for Village that we would stand firm for You. That we'd stand firm for Your truth. That we would be on guard against falsehood coming into our assembly, against allowing them to happen. That we would be willing to exercise church discipline by going to that person and correcting that the purity of Your church would be something we hold dear so that we can stand for Your name and stand for Your reputation. Lord, if we compromise, we are soiling Your name. And so, Lord, I pray that You would challenge us this week to evaluate whether there's any areas of compromise, any areas where we have let worldliness mix with our faith and Christianity, where we have started to walk towards the precipice. Lord, may we, as Your church, be holy and pure and spotless and be an incredible light for You in a dark world. In Jesus' name, Amen.